Hello, my name is Moriarty, and this is part six of my deep dive into the history of video games. From the simple beginnings of 2D pixel art to jaw-dropping 3D graphics, the year 2000 was the end result of an explosion of creativity and innovation. Powered by technological advancements and a fierce competition among the industry's titans. In this golden era, the iconic rivalry between Nintendo and Sega captivated gamers worldwide. Sony stepped into the fray with their groundbreaking PlayStation, raising the stakes even higher. The indie game scene thrived with the Independent Games Festival shining a light on small developers who dared to dream big. Video games finally gained recognition as a legitimate art form, with prestigious award ceremonies celebrating the industry's accomplishments. The British Academy of Film and Television Arts, BAFTA, hosted its third annual BAFTA Interactive Entertainment Awards for Multimedia Technologies, with seven of the 20 awards going to video games. David Bowie, for instance, was honored in part for his contributions to the game Omicron the Nomad Soul. In terms of sales, Pokemon is the best-selling game worldwide for the third consecutive year. However, in the US, it was Tony Hawk's Pro Skater that was making waves. Despite being a 5 out of 5, 10 out of 10 game with platinum sales awards, selling millions of copies and breaking numerous sales records, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater was largely a US phenomenon. Just a few years prior to the release of Pro Skater, Tony Hawk himself was struggling financially, with the skateboarding scene in the US described as post-apocalyptic. Many brands within the scene were declaring bankruptcy, and skaters were hoarding trucks out of fear they'd have to pour their own wheels. Skateboarding, originally a California sport popularized by surfers, had its roots in the 1920s and 1930s. However, it wasn't until the release of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater that skateboarding truly became an international sport, with companies emerging in Brazil, England, and Germany. Meanwhile, Rare, a British video game developer formerly known as Ultimate Play the Game, was making a new name for itself with the release of games like Banjo-Tooie, Perfect Dark, and Donkey Kong 64. However, the company was heading towards burnout, and despite the success of their games, development costs were increasing. Nintendo did not provide Rare with more capital. Why do people consider 2000 the golden year of gaming? Was it the perfect storm of creativity, technology, and marketing? market conditions? And how did the industry's evolution impact the games themselves, pushing developers to new heights and transforming the way we play today? Developed under the visionary leadership of Will Wright, The Sims was a digital playground, a sandbox of life. Wright, who had already made waves with the SimCity series, took inspiration from Christopher Alexander's 1977 book, A Pattern Language. This book delved into the architecture of cities and the patterns of human interaction within them. Wright's genius was in taking these architectural principles and applying them to the microcosm of a single household. Most games have a clear objective, a final boss, an endgame. But The Sims? It was a game without an endpoint. It was more akin to a toy, a digital dollhouse where players could endlessly experiment and play. This open-ended nature was revolutionary. It gave players the freedom to craft their own narratives, to create, to destroy, and to live out countless virtual lives. The gaming world, especially back in 2000, was predominantly male-dominated, but The Sims? 
Sims broke that mold. A significant portion of its community was female players. This wasn't just a statistical anomaly, it was a testament to the game's universal appeal. The Sims didn't cater to a traditional gamer demographic, it reached out to everyone. It was a game that transcended gender, age, and cultural boundaries. The core of The Sims was its focus on human behavior and interaction. It wasn't about slaying dragons or saving the world, it was about the everyday dramas, joys, and tragedies tragedies of virtual people. The emphasis on social interactions was groundbreaking. Players weren't just controlling characters, they were shaping lives, forging relationships, and crafting stories. Its critical acclaim and commercial success are well documented. With several sequels and spin-offs, The Sims established itself as the best-selling PC game of all time, finally knocking Myst off the top position it had held since 1993. Oh, greetings, stranger. I'm not surprised to see your kind here. Developed over a grueling three-year period with a crunch time that spanned a year and a half, the dedication and passion of the Blizzard team were evident in every pixel and every line of code in Diablo 2. Its dark fantasy themes were a stark departure from the more colorful and vibrant worlds we were accustomed to. The game's atmosphere was palpable, drawing players into its grim narrative and making every encounter feel like a battle for survival. The haunting soundtrack, the eerie sound effects, and the meticulously designed environments all contributed to a sense of immersion that few games could rival. But atmosphere alone doesn't make a game great. Diablo 2 introduced a complex item system that added layers of depth to the gameplay. Every weapon, every piece of armor, every potion had its own unique properties, encouraging players to experiment and strategize. This was complemented by multiple character classes, each with its own set of abilities and playstyles. Whether you were a paladin smiting foes with divine wrath, or a necromancer raising the dead to do your bidding, Diablo 2 ensured that every playthrough felt fresh and unique. In an era where games were becoming more forgiving, Diablo 2 dared to challenge its players. Hardcore mode was not for the faint of heart. One death, and your character was gone forever. This added a level of tension and stakes that few games could match. Every battle was a risk, every decision mattered, and every victory felt earned. Deus Ex wasn't just another action role-playing game, it was a masterclass in design and storytelling. The world it presented was vast, not just in terms of physical space, but in the depth of its lore and the complexity of its characters. The fact that the game's scope was initially intended to be three to four times its final size is a testament to the ambition of its creators. While many of these additional levels and ideas were left on the cutting room floor, what remained was a dense, intricate world that players could lose themselves in. One of the most chilling aspects of Deus Ex is its uncanny ability to mirror real-world events. The missing twin towers from the game's skyline, explained away as the result of a terrorist attack, is a haunting premonition of the tragic events that would unfold just one year later. However, this wasn't a deliberate prediction, but a limitation of the technology at the time. Yet the eerie accuracy of this detail adds a layer of depth and realism to the game's world. Similarly, the subplot surrounding the Grey Death, a rampant disease the world struggles to contain feels all too familiar in today's context. While the in-game virus was a tool for world domination, the parallels to our own battles with global pandemics are hard to ignore. It's a stark reminder of the power of video games to reflect and even anticipate the challenges of the real world. At its core, Deus Ex is a game about choices. 
Whether it's the skills you invest in, the weapons you modify, or the narrative paths you pursue, the game constantly adapts to your decisions. Playing as J.C. Denton, an agent enhanced with nano-augmentations, you're not just a passive observer, you're an active participant, shaping the world and its outcomes. This level of player agency was groundbreaking at the time, and set the stage for future titles that would put choice at the forefront of gameplay. In an era where most games rewarded players for charging headfirst into battle, Thief 2 took a different approach. Here, the shadows were your ally, and the quietest approach was often the most rewarding. This wasn't a game about how many enemies you could defeat, it was about how many you could avoid. The emphasis on stealth over combat was a refreshing change of pace, challenging players to think critically about the environment and use their surroundings to their advantage. Drawing inspiration from Victorian and steampunk aesthetics, the game's dark fantasy world was both familiar and foreign. The cobbled streets, the gaslit alleyways, and the towering cathedrals all contributed to a sense of a place that was palpable. But it wasn't just the visuals, the sound design was equally impressive. The distant footsteps of a guard, the muffled conversations behind closed doors, and the eerie silence of an empty room all added layers of immersion that few games could match. Garrett, our master thief, had an arsenal of tools at his disposal, each more inventive than the last. The remote camera was a game changer, allowing players to scout ahead and plan their approach, but it was the special arrows that truly showcased the game's creativity. Water arrows to douse torches, noisemaker arrows to divert attention, and moss arrows to muffle footsteps. Each tool required players to think strategically and adapt to the situation at hand. There is one aspect of Thief 2 that often goes overlooked, it's cutscenes. These weren't your typical game cinematics. Layered with artwork, live action footage, and a unique animation style, they were a testament to the game's commitment to pushing boundaries. The influence of films like Eraserhead and The Elephant Man is evident, adding a cinematic flair that elevated the game's narrative. It's impossible to discuss Thief 2 without acknowledging the challenges faced by Looking Glass Studios. Despite the game's critical acclaim, financial troubles and slow royalty payments cast a shadow over its success. The dedication of the team, even in the face of adversity, is a testament to their passion and commitment to their craft. This is personally one of my favorite games ever made. I would be the one putting this in a time capsule if I was around when it was put in the ground in 2000. This is a game that holds up well, and you should go play it. Bioware's sequel to their acclaimed RPG Baldur's Gate, Baldur's Gate 2 Shadows of Om took players on an even grander adventure, with more complex characters, a larger world, and a deeper story. But it wasn't just the size that mattered, it was the depth. Every corner of the game, from the bustling streets of Athcatla to the mysterious Underdark, was teeming with life. The game setting, The Forgotten Realms, was brought to life with such meticulous detail that players felt like they were stepping into a living, breathing world. This wasn't just a map to traverse, it was a a realm to get lost in, filled with secrets to uncover and stories to unravel. While the world of Baldur's Gate 2 was vast, it was the characters that truly stole the show. 
Our protagonist, Gorian's ward, was on a quest that was both deeply personal and world-shattering. But it wasn't just about the main character. The companions you could recruit had their own intricate backstories, motivations, and arcs. Take Minsk and his miniature giant space hamster, Boo, for example. On the surface, a comedic duo, but delve deeper and you find a warrior with a heart of gold and a tragic past. These characters weren't just NPCs, they were friends, allies and sometimes adversaries. Their interactions, banter, and personal quests added layers of depth to the narrative, making the journey all the more enriching. At the heart of Baldur's Gate 2 was a narrative that was both epic and intimate. The antagonist wasn't just another power-hungry mage. He was a character shrouded in mystery, with a personal vendetta against the protagonist. As players delved deeper into the story, they unraveled the layers of his past, his falls from grace, and his unsafe insatiable thirst for power. The game masterfully wove a tale of revenge, redemption, and the consequences of unchecked ambition. Sega, once a titan in the console wars, was on shaky ground, marked by innovation, ambition, and a series of missteps that would ultimately reshape the company's destiny. The backdrop to this tumultuous period was the financial instability that Sega found itself in, following their underwhelming performance of the Sega Saturn. With the weight of this failure on their shoulders, Sega was in dire need of a win, and they placed their bets on the Dreamcast. Iseo Okawa, the company's chairman was a visionary. He saw the untapped potential of online gaming long before it became the norm. His belief in this future was so strong that he personally funded free internet access for Japanese Dreamcast units during the expensive dial-up era. This was a bold move, especially when you consider that many of Sega's studios were deeply engrossed in their own projects. But Okawa's vision was clear. He wanted a flagship online game for the Dreamcast. Enter Sonic Team, led by the talented Yuji Naka. Tasked with this monumental challenge, they looked to popular online RPGs for inspiration. Diablo, with its captivating action and graphics, was a particular influence. The result was Fantasy Star Online, or PSO, a game that seamlessly blended the best elements of action RPGs in a 3D universe. But what's truly remarkable is Okawa's involvement in the project. Even as he battled terminal illness, he remained deeply invested, eagerly awaiting updates from his hospital bed. Here was a game that dared to take the RPG genre online, at a time when most of us were still grappling with dial-up connections. But it wasn't just the online aspect that made it stand out. PSO was a melting pot of ideas. It borrowed the action and graphics of games like Diablo and threw them into a 3D universe, creating a seamless blend of action and role-playing. Players from around the world could team up, embark on quests, and even communicate using a unique system of symbols. This was a time before voice chat became mainstream, and yet PSO managed to create deep connections between players. Many forged friendships that lasted well beyond the game's lifespan. The game was divided into episodes, each with its own set of challenges, quests, and storylines. This episodic approach kept players engaged, always eager for the next installment. It was 
a precursor to the DLCs and episodic games we see today. However, the brilliance of PSO couldn't shield Sega from the broader challenges it faced. The PlayStation 2's impending launch cast a long shadow, and the Dreamcast sales in the US began to falter. In a bid to compete, Sega offered hefty rebates on the Dreamcast, further deepening its financial troubles. The situation reached a breaking point when Sega of America's executives announced the discontinuation of the Dreamcast. This decision, coming on the heels of the release of Sonic Adventure 2 and the tragic passing of Okawa, was a significant blow. However, the challenges Sega faced were not just external. Internally, there were significant disagreements and missteps that contributed to the company's struggles. For instance, Hayao Nakayama's push for the early release of the 32X and the Sega Saturn in the West proved disastrous. Hideki Sato's decision to focus on 2D sprite capabilities for the Saturn, only to later pivot to 3D polygons, made the console notoriously difficult to program for. These decisions, coupled with external pressures, created a perfect storm that Sega struggled to navigate. The company's challenges were further compounded by failed business ventures and mergers. Nakayama's attempt to merge with Bandai, another company facing challenges, fell through. This failure marked the end of Nakayama's tenure at Sega. The Dreamcast's development also faced hurdles with Sato's insistence on using Japanese NEC chips leading to a chip shortage that hampered the console's launch. With Okawa's passing and the company's continued struggles, Sega found itself at a crossroads. Okawa, in a final act of generosity, gifted his shares to the company, a move that likely saved Sega from collapse. However, the company's future remained uncertain, though one name emerged from the shadows, ready to take on a project that would once again put Sega in the spotlight. Yu Suzuki, a legendary figure within the company, had a vision for a game that would push the boundaries of storytelling and immersion, and its development would become a defining chapter in Sega history. Father! Stay back, Mio. For the last time, where is the mirror? I've no intention of telling you. Developed by Sega for the Dreamcast, Shenmue was the brainchild of Yu Suzuki, a luminary in the gaming world. Suzuki wasn't just any game designer, he was the force behind arcade classics like Space Harrier and Outrun. But with Shenmue, he was venturing into uncharted territory. This wasn't just a game, it was an experience. A sprawling epic that sought to blur the lines between gaming and cinema. Originally envisioned as a Virtua Fighter RPG for the Sega Saturn, it transitioned to the Dreamcast. Suzuki introduced a concept he termed free, full reactive eyes entertainment. This wasn't just a catchy acronym, it was a philosophy. Shenmue offered players an unparalleled level of freedom. You weren't just playing a character, you were living as Ryo Hazuki. Every NPC had a routine, shops opened and closed, the world had its own day-night cycle, and the weather changed organically. It wasn't just about the main quest, it was about immersing oneself in a living, breathing world. Today, we're spoiled with expansive open worlds in games like The Witcher 3 and Red Dead Redemption 2, but back in 2000, this was revolutionary. Shenmue's world wasn't just big, it was alive. It was a world that felt real, tangible. Shenmue's narrative was a tapestry 
of emotion, culture, and martial arts. Ryohozuki's quest for revenge took players from the streets of Yokosuka to the heart of China. But it wasn't just about avenging a father's death. It was a journey of self-discovery, of understanding one's place in the world, and of coming to terms with destiny. Suzuki's own trip to China in 1993, where he delved into martial arts and scouted locations, heavily influenced the game's narrative and setting. Suzuki and his team went to great lengths to ensure the game's world was as accurate as possible. Suzuki immersed himself in the culture, the martial arts, and the locations in China during his visit that would inspire the game's setting. This dedication to realism extended to the game's weather patterns, which were based on actual meteorological data from the 1980s. It's this attention to detail that made Shenmue's world feel so immersive. Shenmue wasn't just innovative in its world building, it also brought back and redefined gameplay mechanics. The game introduced the world to quick time events, or QTEs. These events required players to respond to on-screen prompts, blending cinematic sequences with gameplay. While QTEs are commonplace now, Shenmue was the title that coined the term and popularized the mechanic. Shenmue was also expensive. I mean, really expensive. Its budget was a staggering $70 million, equivalent to $125 million today, a budget that would make Hollywood blockbusters blush even today. It was, at the time, the most expensive video game ever developed. Despite its groundbreaking mechanics and narrative depth, it was a commercial misstep. The game's massive budget meant it had to sell an unrealistic number of copies to break even. And while it was critically acclaimed and developed a passionate fan base, it just couldn't move enough units. This commercial failure, coupled with the Dreamcast's own struggles against the PlayStation 2, meant that Shenmue became a symbol of Sega's challenges in the early 2000s. Yu Suzuki's star was greatly diminished by the expensive failure of Shenmue. Shenmue 2 managed to do even worse. And while Suzuki would be involved in a few more games like Virtua Fighter 4, which was marginally successful, the remainder of his time at Sega would primarily be spent on games that would be cancelled. Failures like Sci-Fi, a touchscreen-based arcade fighter that burnt players' fingers from how hot it got. Or Shenmue Online, which cost $26 million trying to break into China's MMO market, but never even managed to be launched. After a game called Pure Breed, in which the player travels around as a human with a pet dog who slowly starts to look like them, was cancelled in the concept stage because it would simply be too expensive, Yu Suzuki finally decided to retire from Sega. But his story isn't quite over yet, as we would see a few years later. Welcome to 2001, a year that saw industry giants shifting gears, consoles going head-to-head, -head, and storytelling soaring to new heights. First on the list, we must tip our hats to Sega, who gracefully bowed out of the console market after the Dreamcast didn't quite hit the mark. Though it was a bittersweet goodbye, Sega's departure marked a turning point in the industry, paving the way for fresh competition and innovation. Speaking of competition, 2001 was the zenith of the sixth console generation. Nintendo brought the GameCube to the party, while Microsoft made a grand entrance with the Xbox. With the PlayStation already on the scene, the stage was set for a new console war that would define the next decade. 2001 marked a leap in storytelling, with titles embracing more mature themes. 
Players found themselves immersed in complex narratives and vibrant worlds that they could scarcely have imagined just a year earlier. And let's not forget the online revolution. 2001 saw the birth of multiplayer experiences that connected players across the globe, creating a sense of camaraderie and competition that was simply unprecedented. And of course, for the fourth year in a row, the best-selling game was Pokemon. How did the gaming industry evolve from the golden year of 2000 to the groundbreaking year of 2001, and what were the ripple effects of these changes on the games that came to define the era? In the late 90s, nestled within the fast-paced landscape of game development, Bungie, an indie developer from Chicago, was crafting its next vision. Having already left a mark with their tactical game Myth in 1997, the team at Bungie aimed to transcend that success. Their ambitious project, a real-time strategy game that would eventually birth the Halo universe as we know it. However, context is essential. The gaming landscape was different. While PC gaming was thriving, especially with real-time strategy titles like Age of Empires and Command and & Conquer, consoles were more associated with platformers, and increasingly RPGs. Bungie's predilection to weave detailed narratives, as seen in their previous games, was now being channeled into a genre that was ripe for innovation. In these early developmental stages, their vision for Halo included sprawling terrains, indicative of a focus on large-scale strategies. One can almost visualize the grand armies of Spartans and Warthogs clashing with the alien might of the Covenant on vast open plains. However, the reality at Bungie was far more tumultuous. Their last title, Myth 2 Soul Blighter, had seen a problematic release, marred by a grave bug that inadvertently deleted players' system files, leading to a costly recall of the game. This financial blunder strained Bungie's resources, putting it over a million dollars in the hole and jeopardized its independent status. This vulnerability would set the stage for one of the most consequential partnerships in games history. At the turn of the millennium, Microsoft was venturing aggressively into the console market with its ambitious DirectX box project. For Microsoft, the success of this endeavor hinged not only on the hardware, but also on securing exclusive, compelling content. Enter Halo. Steve Jobs unveiled Halo at Macworld 1999, signaling its release for Apple's Macintosh. It was an announcement that captured the gaming community's imagination. Here was a game that promised to bridge the gap between console and PC gaming experiences. However, the financial pressures on Bungie and Microsoft's strategic visions intersected in an unprecedented move. By mid-2000, whispers in the industry corridors were confirmed. Microsoft had acquired Bungie. This acquisition wasn't just a business transaction, it was an alignment of visions and mutual needs. Bungie needed a lifeline, and Microsoft needed a flagship. With Microsoft's backing, Halo underwent a metamorphosis. The vast landscapes designed for RTS warfare were retained, but the perspective shifted. Now players were not commanders watching from the skies, they were Spartans on the ground. This transformation was not merely cosmetic, it required rethinking 
thinking, gameplay dynamics, player engagement, and narrative immersion. A pivotal challenge was the control scheme. First-person shooters on consoles were a rarity, and many that existed struggled with clunky controls. Bungie's solution followed the lead of Argonaut Games' Alien Resurrection, the dual analog control setup, which became the blueprint for FPS games on consoles. Yet beneath these technicalities, the soul of Halo, its narrative, remained robust. From the enigmatic bond between Master Chief and Cortana to the theological motivations of the Covenant, the story offered a rich tapestry of interpersonal relationships, politics, and existential threats. By the time Halo Combat Evolved launched on the Xbox in November 2001, it was not just another game on a shelf, it was a statement. A statement to resilience, innovation, and strategic partnerships. It showcased the result of Bungie's passionate creativity, married to Microsoft's ambitious vision. The Halo effect had begun, not just in the game's universe, but in ours as well. It is unimaginably influential, not just to the gamers who played it, but to the developers making other games. Halo had rewritten everything, and every game suddenly needed to be a Halo killer. Rockstar released Grand Theft Auto 3. The open-world crime adventure they crafted was a masterclass in game design, offering players a sandbox experience that was unparalleled. Before this, the concept of an open world was relatively nascent, but GTA 3 took it, refined it, and set a gold standard. The City of Liberty was vast, detailed, and alive. Every NPC, every car, every building was meticulously crafted to immerse the player fully. The freedom it offered was intoxicating. You weren't just playing a character, you were living a life in a city of endless possibilities. This was the game that truly defined what open world meant, and in doing so, it paved the way for several sequels and inevitably a slew of imitators trying to capture that same magic. But the landscape wasn't just shaped by GTA 3 alone. Just three weeks prior, the world was introduced to another titan. Halo. While GTA 3 was redefining open-world gameplay, Halo was revolutionizing the first-person shooter genre. The impact of these two releases was profound. They didn't just raise the bar, they were the bar. Developers now had new benchmarks of excellence to aspire to, and the way games were designed, played, and even reviewed underwent a metamorphosis. An interesting case study from this period is Jack and Daxter. On its own, it was a solid game but its release in the shadow of GTA 3 did it no favors. Critics, fresh off the high of Liberty City, found it hard to appreciate Jack and Daxter in the same light. The standards had shifted so dramatically and so quickly that what would have been a hit in any other year seemed lackluster in comparison. The combined might of GTA 3 and Halo was a force to be reckoned with. Together, they were bigger than anything the industry had seen before or arguably since. Their influence was so pervasive that they didn't just shape the games that followed, they shaped the expectations of an entire generation of gamers. Developers now had to think bigger, aim higher, and innovate more than ever before. In between revolutionizing the first-person shooter genre with Marathon and Halo, Bungie took some time to update the third-person beat-em-up with Oni, a cyberpunk action romp. Heroine Kanoko stands alongside Darcy Stern from Urban Chaos as one of the great lost female protagonists of video gaming. A renegade cop with a devastating range of combat moves, an interesting backstory, and clothes that, well, she basically wore actual clothes. 
Although criticized at the time for its sparse visuals and lack of multiplayer, this combination shooter-slash-brawler has such pace and energy, paving the way for modern melee releases like Batman Arkham Asylum. Drawing its inspiration from Mamoru Oshii's anime, Ghost in the Shell, and Toshimishi Suzuki's anime, Bubblegum Crisis, Bungie's Oni promised a fresh gaming experience. The dream was to blend intense melee combat with a narrative draped in anime-inspired visuals, offering something that was both familiar and entirely new. The fusion of cyberpunk aesthetic with a fluid combat system presented an inviting challenge for the Bungie West team. However, dreams often collide with reality. As Bungie steered forward with Oni's development, challenges mounted. A glaring bug in the release of Myth 2 led to a financial storm, forcing Bungie to seek refuge by selling a stake of the company to Take-Two Interactive. With this new partnership and the infusion of capital, the path seemed clear for Oni yet the realities of game development came biting. The demo showcased at the prominent E3 gaming conference was revealed to be more of a facade, masking the actual state of the game's development. Internally, tensions brewed. Brent Pease, who initially was at the helm of Oni's creative direction, often found himself at odds with his team. This friction culminated in his removal and the introduction of Hardy LaBelle, who overhauled the game's narrative and design. Under LaBelle's guidance, Oni saw a new dawn, edging closer to to its anticipated release. Much of the discourse surrounding female characters in video games tend to circle around their attire, often a reflection of the era's objectification. Kanako, with her practical attire, served as a progressive step. By bringing a character that was both grounded in reality and dynamically powerful, Bungie highlighted that female protagonists didn't need to be overly sexualized to be potent and memorable. A game, especially one as ambitious as Oni, is as much about the ideas it brings to fruition as ones it's forced to sideline. The absence of multiplayer, once a gleaming feature, speaks of the hard choices developers often make. Bungie's larger focus on Halo, the buyout by Microsoft, and the overshadowing of Oni during these crucial moments adds layers to its story, making it a product of not just innovation, but also adaptation. January 2001 marked the culmination of years Years of toil as Oni finally graced store shelves. However, the reception was far from the euphoria Bungie West had hoped. Muted marketing support by Take-Two, who now viewed Bungie as a competing company after its acquisition, coupled with a lackluster console port by Rockstar Games, dampened its initial impact. As sales figures trickled in, the numbers painted a grim picture. Less than 100,000 copies sold. And just as it was trying to find its voice amidst the clamor of new releases, Bungie's crown jewel Halo took the world by storm, relegating Oni further into the shadows. Yet to dismiss Oni solely based on its commercial performance would be a grave oversight. One of the most intriguing facets of Oni lies in its narrative underpinnings. Set across a mere week and a half, its story was often described as understated. In an age where sprawling narratives were becoming the norm, Oni dared to be concise. It evokes reflection upon the brevity of its plot versus the vastness of its influence. This understatement isn't a weakness. It's a conscious choice, focusing on concentrated storytelling 
storytelling and reminding us that even within brevity, depth can be achieved. The question that lingers in the minds of many is, why hasn't there been a sequel? Ownership disputes between Take-Two and Bungie have muddied the water, and while Oni might not currently be viewed as a commercial goldmine, any hint of Bungie's interest could transform its perceived value for Take-Two. Oni's development offers a window into the turbulence of the late 90s and early 2000s in the video game industry. Financial troubles, acquisitions, and talent turnovers weren't mere headlines. They were transformative forces. Bungie's journey from its fiscal challenges in 1998 to Microsoft's acquisition in 2000 mirrors the industry's unpredictable nature. However, amidst these seismic shifts, what persisted was the sheer passion and vision of the developers. And this is best epitomized by the ever-passionate fan community, who even today breathe life into Oni with mods, gameplay tools, and envisioned sequels. There was nothing about the starry sky that night to suggest that strange and mysterious things would soon be happening. As unsuspecting muggles slept, a huge motorbike with a giant astride it tumbled down from the darkness. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone's success was staggering. It wasn't just the best-selling PlayStation game of its time, but it outsold iconic titles like every Crash Bandicoot, every Tomb Raider, and even Metal Gear Solid 1. To put this into perspective, on its release day, it shared the spotlight with Halo. Yet while Halo was revolutionizing the FPS genre, Harry Potter was weaving its own kind of magic, enchanting gamers of all ages. Behind this monumental success was Argonaut, the same team that brought us gems like Croc and Star Fox. Their expertise in creating immersive 3D environments was evident in every corner of Hogwarts. Every nook and cranny was crafted with care, making players feel like they were truly wandering the halls of the magical school, dodging peeves and sneaking past filch. The game's engine, previously developed for the Croc series, was repurposed brilliantly, showcasing Argonaut's versatility, and prowess. One of the most intriguing aspects of the game's development was its collaboration with Warner Brothers. This ensured that the game was not just a hasty adaptation, but a faithful recreation of the beloved story. The sets, the environment, even the narrative nuances were borrowed from the film adaptation, making the game a visual and auditory treat. It was a masterclass in how to adapt a movie into a game without losing its essence. But what truly set the game apart was its puzzle-based gameplay. Aimed at a younger demographic, the game didn't rely on fast reflexes or complex mechanics. Instead, it was about exploration, about using one's wits to navigate the challenges of Hogwarts. This approach resonated with players, offering a refreshing change from the high-octane titles of the era. The game's success wasn't just limited to the PlayStation. On the PC, it was the best-selling game of 2001. Its revenue crossed the $500 million mark, placing it among the highest grossing games of all time. These numbers weren't just statistics, they were a testament to the game's universal appeal. Final Fantasy X was more than just another entry in the beloved series, it was a statement that Square Enix was ready to embrace the next generation of gaming. The game's visuals were nothing short of breathtaking. Every frame, every pixel was meticulously crafted to showcase the power of the PlayStation 2. From the sprawling landscapes of Spyra to the detailed character models, it was evident that this was a game that had been developed with a lot of love and passion. But visuals alone don't make a game iconic. It's the stories, the characters, and the gameplay that leave a lasting impact. 
and Final Fantasy X delivered on all fronts. The narrative was deep, emotional, and resonated with players. It tackled themes of love, sacrifice, and the inexorable march of time. The characters, especially Titus and Yuna, became instant fan favorites. Their journey, their struggles, and their eventual fate tugged at the heartstrings of many. The combat system in Final Fantasy X was a fresh take on the traditional turn-based mechanics. It introduced the conditional turn-based battle system, which added a layer of strategy to the fights. Players had to think ahead, plan their moves, and anticipate their enemies' actions. It was a departure from the active time battle system of previous games, but it was a change that was well received. Amidst the gigantic shadows cast by Halo and Grand Theft Auto 3, Final Fantasy X shone brightly. It was the beacon for JRPG fans, the game that stood its ground and showcased that there was still a place for heartfelt narratives and intricate gameplay mechanics. It is honestly saying something, that it was one of the only games that wasn't completely blown out of the water by Halo and GTA 3. X is also the first time in the series that characters had voices, bringing them to life in a way that text boxes never could. It was a bold move, and while there were a few hiccups, the infamous Tidus laughing scene comes to mind, you added a layer of depth to the narrative. You probably shouldn't laugh anymore. At its core, Aiko is a tale of two unlikely companions, a horned boy named Aiko and a mysterious girl named Yorda. The game begins with Aiko being banished to an abandoned fortress because of his horns, a sign of bad luck. Inside, he encounters Yorda, and together they navigate the labyrinthine castle, evading shadowy creatures and solving intricate puzzles to find their way out. The game's environment is a character in itself. The vast, echoing chambers, the hauntingly beautiful architecture, and the ethereal light that filters through the cracks create an atmosphere that is both eerie and enchanting. There's no dialogue in the traditional sense. The communication between Aiko and Yorda is through gestures, helping hands, and shared challenges, making their bond feel organic and genuine. One of the game's most iconic elements is in its use of hand-holding. Aiko literally holds Yorda's hand to guide her through the castle. This simple mechanic becomes a powerful symbol of their interdependence and the game's overarching themes of trust, companionship, and sacrifice. Now juxtapose Aiko's reception with that of Metal Gear Solid 2. MGS2 was a sequel to a beloved game and expectations were sky high. When players discovered they wouldn't be spending most of their time as the iconic Solid Snake, there was an uproar. The game's intricate plot, touching on themes of identity and reality, was overshadowed by this initial disappointment. But as years passed, perception shifted. The very elements that were once criticized in MGS2 became the subjects of deep analytical discussions. Players began to appreciate the game's narrative risks and its commentary on player agency and identity. Similarly, Ico, which might have been initially dismissed by some as just another puzzle game, began to be recognized for its profound emotional depth and innovative design. 
This evolution in perception isn't unique to video games. Think about Vincent Van Gogh, who only sold a few paintings in his lifetime, but is now heralded as one of the greatest painters of all time. Or the movie Blade Runner, which had a lukewarm reception upon release, but is now considered a sci-fi masterpiece. What causes these shifts? Time plays a role, certainly. Distance from initial expectations or contemporary trends allows for a more objective evaluation. But it's also about the evolving cultural landscape. As the medium of video games matured, players and critics became more adept at recognizing and appreciating nuanced storytelling, innovative mechanics, and artistic expression. Capcom is no stranger to the survival horror genre, with legendary titles such as Resident Evil cemented in public memory long after their respective debuts. A few months before the release of Devil May Cry, however, Capcom offered a equally unique, yet somewhat forgotten experience in the form of Onimusha Warlords. This game serves as a fascinating case study for anyone invested in the roots of modern action and survival horror genres. It's one one of those titles whose influence far exceeds its current recognition, and its combat mechanics offer an excellent point of exploration for this reason. The smoothness and versatility in Samanosuke's combat moves was quite the technical feat for the time, allowing players a granular control in dispatching demonic foes that felt visceral and impactful. This was an early instance of Capcom working out how to translate cinematic melee combat into an interactive experience. The player wasn't just moving a character through a game world, they were directing a series of fluid choreographed actions. Devil May Cry has become synonymous with the fast-paced, highly stylized action genre. But what many may not realize is how Devil May Cry was initially conceived as a Resident Evil game. Specifically, it started its life as Resident Evil 4. This is where Onimusha's role becomes instrumental. It was Onimusha that essentially served as the experimental platform for the mechanics that would later flourish in Devil May Cry. Capcom found that the energetic swordplay and the spectacle of combat, when melded with elements of survival horror, could craft a new subgenre altogether. This discovery was instrumental in changing the direction of Devil May Cry, steering it away from the survival horror umbrella to let it stand alone as a benchmark in action gaming. The cinematic combat that was at Onimusha's core was turned up several notches in Devil May Cry, cementing it as a distinct genre. As for Resident Evil 4, it went on to redefine the survival horror genre in its own way, incorporating elements of action but keeping its atmospheric and strategic core intact. These two series took separate paths, but shared a crucial crossroad in Onimusha. What's often overlooked is how Onimusha set a precedent for the blending of actual history with folklore and mythology, a trait that has become quite commonplace in today's action-adventure titles. Games like Assassin's Creed and Ghost of Tsushima owe a debt to Onimusha's audacious blending of historical context with fantastical elements, a formula that has since been replicated but seldom matched in its level of seamless integration. Set in the 16th century Sengoku period of Japanese history, Onimusha drew heavily from the mythos of that period and gracefully integrated its ancient legends into the plot and gameplay. 
The player character uses mystical weapons, arcane spells, and his wit to defeat the demonic forces of Oda Nobunaga, Onimusha's primary antagonist. It was the first game which successfully applied elements of survival horror to a plot steeped in Japanese historical fiction. And boy, was it a fun ride. The game drips with tense action, dubious characters, and moments that are scary enough to keep players awake at night. Onimusha's mythological influence, foreboding atmosphere, and nuanced lore went on to influence later games such as Dark Souls, while spawning several sequels of its own. Though it was both a critical and commercial hit after its release, its memory is somewhat occluded. The enigmatic nature of Onimusha Warlords, the way it teeters between the action and survival horror genres, how it utilized horror as more than just a backdrop, but as a narrative device, and how its mechanics served as a testing ground for two of Capcom's most iconic franchises makes it a title worthy of more discussion. As a result, Onimusha Warlords is largely forgotten outside of the gamers who lived the experience 15 years ago. And that's quite a shame, considering it was widely regarded as one of the best games released that decade. 2002 a year when sequels reigned supreme and Part 2 became synonymous with success. While sequels are as common today as button mashing during a boss fight, back then they were the talk of the gaming town. The industry seemed to be operating on a simple mantra, take a good thing and make it even better, or at least attempt to. This was the year when every major player in the gaming world, from industry behemoths to indie studios, hopped on the sequel bandwagon. We saw third, fourth, and even fifth iterations of popular games with titles like 2.0, Revenge Of, and Return To dominating the gaming landscape. And the best part, gamers couldn't get enough of it. This strategic shift didn't just redefine gaming franchises, but also set new expectations for the gaming community. It begs the question, was this the beginning of a new trend, or just a passing fad? As we delve into the impact of this sequel-centric year, it's essential to consider the implications for the broader gaming landscape. The rise of sequels and the focus on developing pre-existing franchises changed the way games were designed, marketed, and consumed. And Rare, ultimate play of the game, finally burned too brightly and simply could not continue making games the way they were. This led Rare to look for potential buyers, and this year, Microsoft purchased Rare for $375 million when Nintendo refused to purchase the company's remaining stake. Otherwise, in 2002, there's a Wind Waker, there's a Sunshine, there's a sequel. But what does this say about us, the players? Are we creatures of habit, constantly seeking the familiar, or do we just love a good story, no matter how many sequels it takes to tell it. Morrowind wasn't just about the vastness of its world, it was about the depth. Every nook and cranny of the game was steeped in lore. From the scribbled notes of a long-dead scholar to the oral histories of the Ashlander tribes, the game offered a rich tapestry of stories waiting to be discovered. This wasn't a world created overnight, it was the culmination of years of world-building, drawing from the previous titles in the Elder Scrolls series, yet standing distinct in its own right. One of the game's most remarkable features was its commitment to player freedom. In an era when many RPGs still held players by the hand, guiding them from one quest to the next, 
Morrowind took a bold step back. It handed players a world and said, go, explore, make your own destiny. This freedom was both liberating and overwhelming. With no quest markers or clear paths, players had to rely on their wits, their compass, and often handwritten notes to navigate the game's intricate quest lines. NPCs in Morrowind had schedules. They ate, slept, interacted with others, and even had personal biases. This level of detail made the world feel alive and reactive. It wasn't just the player's story. It was a world that moved and evolved with or without the player's intervention. Another standout feature was the game's unique approach to magic and spellcrafting. Instead of being limited to a set list of spells, players could craft their own, combining different effects to create something uniquely theirs. This system allowed for a level of creativity and experimentation rarely seen in games of the era. Want to levitate while turning invisible and setting foes on fire? Morrowind said, why not? Metroid Prime's transition from the 2D side-scrolling of its predecessors to a first-person perspective was a bold move, yet it was executed with such finesse that it felt like a natural evolution. The game retained the core essence of Metroid, the isolation, the exploration, and the atmospheric tension, but it added layers of depth, both literally and figuratively, with its 3D environments. Players found themselves navigating the intricacies of the alien world of Talon IV, from its icy caverns to its molten depths, all rendered in meticulous detail. The Metroid series has always been known for its atmospheric music, but Prime took it a step further. The ambient sounds, the distant echoes, and the haunting melodies all combined to create an immersive soundscape that pulled players deeper into the world. It wasn't just about hearing the game, it was about feeling it. This was a year that saw the release of Super Mario Sunshine, a vibrant and sunny platformer, and the announcement of The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker for the following year, with its cel-shaded graphics and youthful charm. In contrast, Metroid Prime offered a more mature, atmospheric experience. It was a testament to the diversity of the gaming world at the time, showing that there was room for different tones, narratives, and experiences. Vice City transported players to a vibrant, neon-soaked rendition of 1980s Miami. But it wasn't just the setting that made it special, it was how the game captured the essence of the era. The city was alive, pulsating to the rhythms of its iconic soundtrack. From the synthesized beats of New Wave to the thumping bass of classic rock, the radio stations in Vice City were more than just background noise. They were a character in their own right, setting the mood and tone for every mission, every drive, every shootout, making players feel like they were truly living in the 80s. But a game is more than its soundtrack, and Vice City had layers. The narrative was a tapestry of ambition, betrayal, and redemption. Players stepped into the shoes of Tommy Versetti, a character whose journey from ex-con to criminal kingpin was both thrilling and engaging. The story arcs, the side missions, the interactions with various characters, they all painted a picture of a man trying to find his place in a city that was as ruthless as it was glamorous. Beyond the main missions, the city was teeming with life and activities. From buying real estate and managing businesses to engaging in side hustles like taxi driving or vigilante missions, the game offered a plethora of activities that made the world feel alive and dynamic. This level of depth was a testament to Rockstar's commitment to creating a holistic gaming experience. It wasn't just about completing missions, it was about living in Vice City. Warcraft 3 wasn't just another strategy game, blending traditional real-time strategy elements with role-playing game mechanics. 
Players weren't just building bases and amassing armies, they were also guiding heroes, characters with unique abilities and progression systems through an epic narrative. This hero-centric approach was a departure from traditional RTS games and added a layer of depth and strategy that was previously unseen in the genre. The game introduced players to the realm of Azeroth, a land teeming with ancient races, powerful magic, and intricate politics. The narrative was a tapestry of alliances, betrayals, and epic battles, with players getting a front row seat to the events that would shape the world of Azeroth. This deep lore would set the stage for the lore-rich world of Warcraft. Warcraft's world editor was a powerful tool that allowed players to create custom maps and scenarios, giving them the freedom to craft their own stories and gameplay experiences. The world editor was more than just a map-making tool, it was a platform for creativity. It empowered a community of modders and creators, leading to the birth of iconic game modes like Defense of the Ancients, Dota, which would inspire an entire subgenre of games known as MOBAs, multiplayer online battle arenas, and eventually be bought by Valve and turned into Dota 2, one of the largest, most played games of all time. I've been having these weird thoughts lately. Like, is any of this for real? Or not? At a time when new franchises struggled to find their footing, Kingdom Hearts stood out, not just for its unique crossover appeal, but for its ability to resonate with players across age groups. The game's narrative told a tale of friendship, love, and the eternal battle between light and darkness. Sora, the game's protagonist, alongside Donald and Goofy, embarked on a journey that took players through familiar Disney worlds, each beautifully rendered and filled with characters we've grown up with. But it wasn't just a trip down memory lane, each world had its own story arc, intricately tied to the overarching narrative. While Kingdom Hearts borrowed heavily from the Final Fantasy playbook to the point that it's fair to call it derivative, it was evident that Square Enix was venturing into uncharted waters. The game's attempt at 3D platforming was ambitious to say the least. It's true, the camera controls in the original release left much to be desired, often leading to frustrating gameplay experiences. The labyrinthine map designs, while visually stunning, sometimes felt more like a maze than an immersive world. And yes, the crafting system, especially for those aiming for the Ultima weapon, was nothing short of a Herculean task. But here's the thing. While these flaws were evident, they didn't overshadow the game's achievements. The combat system with its real-time action and the introduction of the gummy ship segments was a breath of fresh air. The game's soundtrack, composed by the legendary Yoko Shimomura, was a masterstroke, blending iconic Disney tunes with original compositions that tugged at our heartstrings. One aspect of Kingdom Hearts that often gets lost in discussions is its mini-games. While they might not have been the game's strongest suit, they showcase Square Enix's commitment to creating a diverse gameplay experience. From the rhythmic challenges in Atlantica to the tournament battles in Olympus Coliseum, these mini-games added layers to the gameplay, even if they weren't always a hit with players. The narrative complexity of Kingdom Hearts is something that has been both celebrated and criticized. It's dense, filled with lore, and at times can feel overwhelming. It's almost impossibly complicated to explain, let alone understand over several decades of fanhood. But that complexity is also what sets it apart. It challenges players to think, to connect the dots, and to immerse themselves in a world that is both fantastical and deeply emotional. 
Ratchet & Clank, developed by Insomniac Games, wasn't just another platformer, it was a testament to the studio's innovation and creativity. While it didn't match the sales figures of iconic titles like Crash Bandicoot, its significance cannot be understated. Ratchet & Clank was the first Western game to be bundled with a console in Japan, a market traditionally dominated by local developers. This move wasn't just a business decision, it was a nod to the game's universal appeal and its ability to resonate with audiences across cultural boundaries. But the game's legacy doesn't stop there. Ratchet & Clank's success laid the foundation for a franchise that would stand the test of time. Today, it remains one of Sony's longest-running franchises, second only to Grand Tour. Its enduring appeal and consistent performance over the years played a pivotal role in Sony's decision to acquire Insomniac Games. While other platformers from the PS2 era have faded into obscurity, Ratchet & Clank continues to thrive, a testament to its timeless gameplay and compelling narrative. Now juxtapose this with the story of Sly Cooper. Developed by Sucker Punch Productions, Sly Cooper was a game that oozed charm. Its cel-shaded graphics, stealth-based gameplay, and engaging narrative set it apart from other titles of the time. While it didn't achieve blockbuster sales, it garnered a dedicated fan base, leading to the birth of a beloved series. But Sony wasn't entirely transparent or accurate about the game's sales figures. Whether this was a strategic move to bolster the game's perceived success or simply an oversight remains a topic of debate. Regardless, Sly Cooper's impact on the gaming community was undeniable. The game's nuanced approach to storytelling, combined with its unique gameplay mechanics, made it a cult classic. It was a title that dared to be different, to challenge conventions, and in doing so, carved a niche for itself. Sly Cooper's legacy is not just in the sequels it spawned, but in the memories it created for players around the world. But there's another layer to this narrative. Multimedia companies were making their foray into gaming, and the landscape was becoming increasingly competitive. Universal Interactive, for instance, owned Crash Bandicoot at the time, a move that signaled the blurring lines between traditional entertainment and gaming. In this context, the success of Ratchet and & Clank and Sly Cooper is even more remarkable. These games, with their distinct identities and innovative gameplay, managed to carve a space for themselves in a crowded market. They were not just products of their time, pioneers that set the stage for the future of gaming. 2003 was a year that saw the gaming landscape undergo some tectonic shifts, with monumental mergers and industry-defining launches that would shape the future of gaming as we know it. The fusion of powerhouses Square and Enix birthed a role-playing game titan, while Valve triumphantly launched Steam out of beta forever altering the digital game distribution landscape. But these internal developments were just the tip of the iceberg. 2003 was also the year that video games officially joined the mainstream conversation, with CNN reporting that the industry was now worth a whopping $10 billion. Suddenly, video games found themselves rubbing shoulders with the cool kids, and the financial world took notice. This newfound attention and the influx of investment dollars had some far-reaching consequences. For one, the industry's focus shifted from mere entertainment to a potent combination of innovation and profit-seeking. The pressure to perform and generate revenue became increasingly intense. This shift in priorities had a profound impact on the development process, as creators were compelled to strike a delicate balance between fostering innovation and chasing profits. 
And this led to a transformation of the way games were developed and the stories they told. But was this metamorphosis a boon or a bane for the gaming world? Universal Games, a significant player in the gaming industry, was bought out. Fox Interactive also found itself under new ownership, and Activision, another major player in the gaming world, was also acquired, underscoring the industry's rapidly changing landscape. Vivendi, NBC, and Comcast begin to pile into the industry. Media is being changed by the inclusion of investors, and the face of gaming is the face of Wall Street. In a world where video games have become a multi-billion dollar industry, how do we ensure that creativity and innovation continue to thrive alongside the pursuit of profit? And most importantly, how can we, as gamers, support and nurture the stories and experiences that truly make this medium so special? Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic KOTOR Players were thrust into a galaxy torn apart by conflict where their choices mattered and the line between light and dark side of the Force was blurred. This was a Star Wars story where you weren't just a spectator, you were an active participant, shaping the galaxy's fate with every decision. BioWare took the traditional RPG elements and elevated them, blending them seamlessly with the Star Wars lore. Players could customize their characters, choose their path, and interact with a diverse cast of characters each with their own motivations and stories. This level of depth was unprecedented, especially for a licensed game, and that it set a new standard for what RPGs could achieve while being a licensed game is shocking. Unlike other titles where choices were clear-cut, KOTOR introduced a nuanced system where decisions weren't just about good or evil. It was about understanding the consequences of your actions, the ripple effect they would have on the galaxy, and the personal journey of your character. This system would become a hallmark of Bioware games, influencing titles like Dragon Age and, of course, Mass Effect. Speaking of Mass Effect, it's fascinating to see the parallels between KOTOR and what would become one of Bioware's most iconic franchises. Because Bioware didn't own the Star Wars IP, they were, in a way, restricted. They had a treasure trove of ideas, stories, and features that they couldn't fully explore within the confines of the Star Wars universe. This creative reservoir would eventually flow into the creation of Mass Effect, a game that, in many ways, feels like a spiritual successor to KOTOR. The intricate storytelling, the deep role-playing mechanics, the morality system, all of these elements that were honed in KOTOR found their way into Mass Effect, but with even more depth and nuance. Call of Duty wasn't just another World War II shooter, it was a symphony of intense action, historically inspired missions, and a profound emphasis on teamwork. This wasn't a game that merely put a gun in your hand and set you loose, it was a game that made you feel the weight of the war, the camaraderie of your squad, and the gravity every decision you made on the battlefield. One of the most intriguing aspects of Call of Duty's inception is its roots. Infinity Ward, the studio behind this masterpiece, was a fledgling entity, having been formed just a year prior in 2002. Yet what it lacked in age, it made up for in experience. Many of its initial members were the brains behind Medal of Honor Allied Assault, a game that had already set high standards for the genre. With Vince Zampella at the helm, this team embarked on a journey to create something even grander. The project's initial moniker, Medal of Honor Killer, wasn't just a cheeky internal nickname, it was a mission statement. They weren't here to play second fiddle, they were here to redefine the genre. 
The game's development was a blend of innovation and meticulous research. Infinity Ward didn't just want to create a game, they wanted to recreate World War II. Every weapon, every vehicle, every piece of artillery was studied to ensure that the game's animation and sounds were as authentic as possible. But beyond the aesthetics, the game's engine, an enhanced version of id Tech 3, was tailored to bring out large-scale battles that emphasized squad-based play. This wasn't just about running and gunning, it was about strategy, about relying on your team, and about experiencing the war as a unit. However, the true genius of Call of Duty lay in its artificial intelligence. The game's conduit AI pathfinding was groundbreaking. Enemies weren't just static targets, they were dynamic, intelligent foes. They would flank you, use cover fire, and even bank grenades. Every replay of a level offered a different experience thanks to the dynamic AI environment. This level of unpredictability and dynamism was a stark departure from the scripted actions of past games and set Call of Duty apart. Prince of Persia as a series had its roots in the late 1980s and early 1990s, with its pixelated protagonists navigating trap-laden palaces. But The Sands of Time was a reimagining, a leap forward that brought the series into the 21st century with grace and flair. The game wasn't just a visual upgrade, it was a complete overhaul of what players expected from the prince and his adventures. One of the most striking features of The Sands of Time was its fluid acrobatics. The prince could run on walls, leap across vast chasms, and engage in combat with a balletic grace that was rarely seen in games of that era. This wasn't just a cosmetic feature, it fundamentally changed how players navigated the game world. Obstacles that would have been insurmountable in other games became thrilling challenges, as players learned to harness the prince's agility to overcome them. But agility wasn't the prince's only tool. The Sands of Time introduced a groundbreaking time manipulation mechanic. With the Dagger of Time, players could rewind their actions, undoing mistakes or trying different approaches to challenges. This wasn't just a gimmick, it was woven into the fabric of the game both mechanically and narratively. Battles became puzzles, as players had to think several steps ahead, using their time-rewinding abilities to gain the upper hand against foes. This mechanic was so influential that it would inspire numerous other games in the years to come, but few would integrate it as seamlessly as the same of time did. The game's narrative was another of its strong points. It was a tale of redemption, as the prince, having unwittingly unleashed the sands of time and turned his kingdom to ruins, sought to undo his mistake. The story was told with a maturity and a depth that was rare for action-adventure games, and the relationship between the prince and Farah, a companion he meets on his journey, was nuanced and believable, adding an emotional weight to the player's actions. Among these titles is one that stood out, that took a detour from the norm, offering players a fresh perspective on squad-based shooters, Freedom Fighters. Now before we delve into the depths of this game, I have to admit, I've been itching to discuss this title for ages, but you know, Mini-Me got there first, and honestly, who can compete with that SEO prowess? Hats off to him, but hey, let's dive in anyways. Freedom Fighters presented a narrative that was familiar, but fascinating. The setting was New York, and players found themselves in the shoes of a regular Joe battling it out against Russian troops invading America, just like in Red Dawn. But it wasn't just about shooting enemies and yelling wolverines. The more foes you took down, the higher your charisma rating climbed, and with a higher charisma, you could recruit more followers. It was like blending the intense patriotism of Homefront with the follower mechanics of, well, Twitter. A bizarre combo, but it worked. In most games, 
games, your progress is marked by points, levels, or gear. But Freedom Fighters rewarded players not with better weapons or abilities, but with influence. The more you achieved, the more people would follow you. And in a game about resistance and uprising, what better way to measure success than by the number of people willing to stand by your side? While the game was undoubtedly a shooter, it wasn't just run and gun. The controls were intuitive, allowing players to issue squad commands effortlessly. This added a layer of strategy to the game. You had to think about positioning, about which squad members to send where, and about how to approach each challenge. It wasn't just about reflexes, it was about tactics. The backdrop of New York under siege was beautifully rendered, capturing a city both familiar and alien. The narrative was compelling, drawing players into a story of resistance and hope. It was a narrative that resonated, that felt timely, and that added depth to the gameplay. But as with all tales, there's a touch of tragedy. After Freedom Fighters made its mark, many of us eagerly awaited a sequel. But in a move that left many scratching their heads, IO Interactive decided to shelve the idea in favor of working on Kane and Lynch. Another Capcom release, Beautiful Joe, combined elements from each of the games above to craft a truly remarkable experience. It offered the playability of Frequency, the innovation of Penumbra, the cinematic flair of Onimusha Warlords, and the zaniness of Katamari Damacy all rolled into one beautiful package. Taking the form of a 2D side-scrolling beat-em-up, Beautiful Joe puts the player in the shoes of unremarkable Joe, whose girlfriend is abducted by the villain of a movie that they're watching. She is taken to the aptly named Movie Land, where Joe must rescue her. Along the way, Joe picks up a cheesy costume and some very cool superpowers, which he uses to fight enemies during his journey. Beautiful Joe reinvented the side-scroller with its gorgeous cel-shaded graphics, addictive gameplay, and surprisingly captivating story. Superpowers such as slowing and speeding up time made combat a blast, and were integrated into the game's many platforming elements in a seamless and creative fashion. This allowed the developers at Capcom to make the most of the various environments discovered in Beautiful Joe, from underground caves to bustling cities. Since its release, Beautiful Joe has spawned a few spin-offs which have made the titular character something of a lesser-known mascot in the same vein as Sonic or Mario. An original experience is usually the best, however, and this remains true to Beautiful Joe. Sadly, that experience is not remembered as often as it should be. If you haven't experienced Beautiful Joe, you are missing out on one of the most memorable games of the decade. Thank you for joining me on this journey through history. If you've enjoyed today's episode, there's even more to discover in the next installment. Make sure to download the next episode to continue unraveling the past. If you haven't already, please consider leaving me a five-star review and sharing with your friends and family, but feel free not to. A special thank you to my Patreon patrons who allowed me to make this. Together, we can keep the threads of gaming history alive. I'll see you on the next one. <laughs>